baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley and it's time for our weekly chat about the Atlanta Braves and of course the rest of Major League Baseball as we continue our countdown to opening day. March 26th for the Braves, they'll get the season started as they head out west. But we've got a lot of time and a lot of ground to cover before we get there. A lot of Braves news from this week and of course a lot of Major League Baseball headlines we're going to cover on this episode of the show as Bill Rowland joins me for the weekly starting nine in just a few minutes. Before we get started, want to remind you to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and those reviews, and be sure you connect with me and with the show and with Bill on social media as well. On Twitter, at FromTheDiamond underscore is where you can find the show. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y, and Bill Rowland can be found at Bill Rowland on Twitter, B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. On Instagram, the show is at FromTheDiamond. I am at Grant McCauley as well. And over at FromTheDiamond.com, you can find every episode of the show, including the special five-part series I'm doing with Corey McCartney as I do a Braves positional preview on each of the five parts I covered in my article series. Well, this will be the audio companion. We got the whole pitching staff done, and we got the catchers coming out maybe a little bit later this weekend, so be on the lookout for that. And you can find it all at FromTheDiamond.com. Before we get into our starting nine for this week, I want to go over the headlines that were for the Atlanta Braves this week. And a lot of injury updates and notes to talk about as we get started. And none bigger, I think, than Freddie Freeman, Braves all-star first baseman who was scratched from the lineup on Tuesday after he experienced some elbow inflammation, a little bit of swelling in that surgically repaired right elbow. So he was scratched from the lineup, has not played since. And the Braves are going to give him a little bit of rest before getting him back in there sometime next week. I think everybody was a little bit taken aback by this because you were hoping that by getting that offseason surgery, having the two bone spurs and the bone fragments removed from his elbow, that Freeman would be able to put this elbow pain in his rearview mirror. And when we talked to Freddie back at ChopFest about a month ago, he was also hoping that he'd no longer have to discuss the pain in his elbow. But that was not the reality of it. But I think that as you look at having an elbow surgery, making that decision ultimately, which became a necessity for Freddie, It wasn't a guarantee that he wasn't going to have any kind of residual pain after the fact, but the kind of pain, the sharp pains that he was having before, that was the thing that you were going to have to eliminate by having that surgery. So as you ramp up the activities, I mean, Freddie Freeman was no longer doing flip drills or just hitting in the batting cage or maybe doing a little bit of throwing. He was combining all of that, also playing a game, and that does take a toll on you. And for Freddie, this is, I think, an important thing for him and for the team to listen to his body right now give him that little bit of time. Both Brian Snitker and Alex Anthopoulos have said they believe that this is going to be something that can be managed right now and that time is the thing that Freddie Freeman needs and they want to give him that. And for Freddie Freeman, he believes he'll be ready by opening day, doesn't see that as a concern. 
uh, even missing this week's worth of games. He'll still have about three weeks' worth of exhibitions to play as we get into the month of March and lead up to opening day, which, of course, is March the 26th. So I think it's something to be monitoring, but not necessarily something to be overly concerned with right now. If this continues to flare up time after time, then the Braves and Freeman may have to take a different approach at how they want to manage this. And I know that Freddie doesn't want to end up back in the position that he was in, say, at the second half of last year, trying to manage this pain on a daily basis. So hopefully he and the team can handle this issue in the short term and it won't become a long-term problem for him. Meanwhile, on the injury front, Mike Soroka was unable to make his Grapefruit League debut the first week, but he is going to be doing that on Friday against the New York Yankees in Northport. Soroka caught a spike throwing a live batting practice, and the Braves just wanted to be easy with him because it was a little bit of a groin issue, I guess, that they were uh, hoping would not become a big issue. And for Soroka, he was able to get back out there, throw, and felt no pain, no ill effects from that. So he is cleared to make this start against the Yankees, and As we look at the Braves' rotation, I would imagine your opening day starter for the Atlanta Braves, if it's not Mike Soroka, I would be very surprised, but want to see him out there every fifth day building up that pitch count, getting himself ready for an assignment like that, and of course the grind that's going to follow over the 162 games plus October, which the Braves would very much like to see Soroka pitching in in an expanded role, I would say, this time around. Also in the starting rotation on the injury front, Cole Hamels has reported to camp He was a little bit delayed after having some shoulder discomfort. He had injured himself doing a workout, kind of trying to ramp things up right before spring training. That has set him back for a few weeks. Will open the season on the injured list, but when Hamels came in and talked to reporters, he felt that he was going to be right where he needed to be moving through the month of April to rejoin the Braves rotation sooner than later. So on the shelf for a little while, but hopefully something for Hamels that will not hinder him from being what the Braves need him to be and that is the veteran stabilizer of this rotation, and that's exactly why they went out and signed him to that one-year $18 million deal. When we talk about the rotation, of course, not as much worry about Mike Soroka, a little bit of concern about Cole Hamels, but it creates an opportunity, does Hamels opening the season on the IL for other pitchers. In specific, I think it's going to be fascinating to monitor what goes on with Felix Hernandez. This is a guy that really needs no introduction when you talk about how good he has been over the course of his career, but the last two to three years has not been the same pitcher that he was during his prime seasons with Seattle when he was arguably one of, if not the best pitchers in all of baseball. This is a guy that came to camp in good shape, reminded people that he's not old and necessarily over the hill at the age of 33, and he's hoping that by signing with the Braves, he'll get that opportunity to pitch and make it into October for the first time in his career as he has never thrown a postseason pitch. So that would be something big if Felix Hernandez is able to recapture a little bit of that past magic and grab a spot in rotation and ride that thing on out for the rest of the year or simply be a part of the Braves pitching staff in some way, shape, or form, which we'll find out as spring goes on who exactly is going to round out the rotation and what pitchers could be rounding out the bullpen as well, as I'm sure the Braves would like to carry a long man. And there could be worse things than a healthy Felix Hernandez being a long man for this team if it comes to that. But first things first. Let's figure out who the five starters are in the rotation. We know who a few of them should be, but that fifth spot, very much up for grabs, and Felix has two pretty good outings under his belt early in spring training. Now, I will stress, as we say every year, spring training stats don't always tell the whole story. For a lot of guys, it's about getting healthy, getting their reps, and moving forward. But for Felix, a guy that's had some pretty rough seasons, especially in 2019, putting up good numbers and feeling healthy 
Those are two things you'd like to see kind of going together, especially for somebody competing for a spot in the rotation. But first couple of times out, kind of have to like what you've seen thus far. And we'll see as the spring goes on and he starts seeing more and more and more regulars and more and more normal lineups, if you will, moving toward opening day, what kind of tests those are going to be. And if he's able to pass those with the same kind of numbers that he's put up here in the early going. Also happening in Braves camp over the first week, you may have noticed by looking at these starting lineups that the battle for third base continues. Austin Riley and Johan Camargo have been alternating starts thus far. Haven't really seen a lot from either one in terms of just jumps off the page, hot starts, lots of hits, lots of home runs, things of that nature. But as the games and the at-bats pile up, we'll start to see a little bit more of an indicator of who might have made the best changes in the offseason and done the things they need to do to earn this job. The interesting thing, and I think I noted this on last week's show or at least on Twitter at some point, is that Johan Camargo might have the inside track because he is a guy that has shown he can be a starting third baseman in the major leagues before, and Austin Riley still has options and could begin the season in Gwinnett so that he could get regular bats again if the Braves choose to go that way. The other aspect of Austin Riley making this team is he really has to make it as the third baseman because your outfield is very full. There is no Austin Riley starting left fielder in the plans, at least for this spring. And if that does happen, then that's going to mean a lot of guys are out of the picture at that point, specifically the left fielder that you signed in Marcelo Zuna. That's a bat that's going to be penciled in the lineup every single day. And that's a position that's really not at the disposal of the Braves to give Austin Riley at bats. So figuring out ways to continue to put the best team on the field. And in the case of, say, Austin Riley, giving him the best opportunity to put himself in position to contribute long-term, even if he's not the starting third baseman on opening day, this is a fine balance that Alex Anthopoulos and company are going to have to walk as this decision is made on who is the starting third baseman for the Atlanta Braves come opening day and perhaps what changes could occur at that position throughout the season if there's inconsistency, struggles, or injuries, which can change plans very quickly. A couple of other things that we've seen throughout the early days of spring, the first few games, if you will. Shea Langoliers, the Braves' top pick in the draft last year, he hit the first home run of the spring for the Braves a couple of days ago. I think if you're looking at where he's going to be to start 2020, there's the outside chance you could see him back at Rome. I think it's more likely that he'll start the season with Advanced A Florida, and I think that William Contreras will find himself back at Mississippi trying to perhaps get off to a hotter start and find himself promoted to Gwinnett in the first half of the season. But the Braves' top catching prospects, neither one of them knocking on the big league door just yet. But for Langoliers, who is a collegiate standout and has all the tools to be a top-flight receiver, it'll be fascinating to watch what his track to the big leagues is. And, of course, a lot of that's going to be predicated on what kind of success he has on each and every stop he makes throughout the minor leagues. And he's kind of in the middle of the system right now and certainly one worth watching as perhaps the future behind the plate for the Atlanta Braves. Meanwhile, the future in the outfield could be Christian Ponche and Drew Waters, both men getting a lot of regular bats early on, which is to be expected as regulars are only getting a couple of ABs per game and usually out by the fourth or fifth inning at this point. So both those men going to be able to get some opportunities early on before minor league camp starts. I expect both to head back to Gwinnett to start the year and show a little bit more, I think, offensively. For Ponche, it'll be tapping in perhaps to his power. We know the glove is there. That's going to play. It's major league ready. And for Waters, cutting down perhaps on the strikeouts will be the biggest thing for him in the year 2020 and moving forward. The switch hitter with that kind of offensive profile can be an exciting player, but there are some aspects of the game for both those men 
that you just want to see that consistency, and that's something we hope they'll find as they begin their year in AAA Gwinnett and perhaps find their way to Atlanta at some point in the not-too-distant future. So that's what's going on in Braves camp over the first week or so of Grapefruit League games. Lots of things can happen between now and opening day, and we'll keep you up to date with all of that right here on From the Diamond. All right, with all of that out of the way, time to jump into our starting nine for this week. And to help me do that, as always, I'd like to welcome Bill Rowland into the show. Bill, I know you're a busy man, but I always enjoy sitting down on a Friday morning and talking about some baseball with you. So looking forward to doing it again this week. Yeah, absolutely. It's always fun. Glad to be back. And we are now one week closer to opening day, which is always a good thing. It always is. I'll take each and every day we get. And also, we've got exhibition baseball to keep us busy for the time being as well. And with that in mind, with the start of exhibition games, we knew there were going to be fans around again. So we knew that this whole saga coming out of Houston was going to take a couple of more turns. And it certainly did, because we know that the Astros are nobody's favorite team these days outside of Houston. Some fans, though, were even nice enough to bring signs to the ballpark for the spring training opener, reminding the Astros of their cheating ways, and those fans had their signs stolen by security. Bill, is this the look the club wants to go for by confiscating fan signs at the ballpark? You know what, Grant? This, for them, is the tip of the iceberg of what is to come when they get into the regular season. Uh, Obviously, this was covered all over the media, everything that happened, but it was them playing Washington, who they share a spring training home Mm -hmm. with. They were the designate home team for that game. So, of course, we got a lot of what went on here in the D.C. area. But it it makes no sense. They can control the narrative when it's their spring training complex. What are they going to do when they go to Yankee Stadium this year? What's going to happen then? I mean, for them to get upset because people are holding up signs, look, I get it if it's your facility and you want to make sure that that your team is not being made fun of when you're, quote-unquote, the home yeah. team. That's fine, but this just goes right along with uh, the whole list of things that we've talked about ad nauseum over the past couple of weeks of how poorly they have handled this. What's going to happen to this team when they get out on the road? Well, ad nauseum is a great word for it because it seems like we spend about 30 to 40% of our show every week kind of talking about what the latest thing is that's come out of this and how poorly it's been handled because that's the absolute truth. And when they go to Yankee Stadium, when they go to any place like that that has a a fan base that's very vocal, they're not going to be able to control that narrative. They're going to get booed. We don't know if they're going to get thrown at, but that's certainly a possibility. But as we've seen in the past, sometimes, sometimes fans like to get a little bit unruly and throw objects from the stands. So I'm just hoping stuff like that doesn't happen. But when I look at signs, I mean, the only two ways that I, the two ways I know to look at this is when you take a sign to a baseball game and hold it up and it obstructs the view of the people sitting behind specifically and around you. Well, that's not a great thing, but between innings, when folks want to hold up their signs and get on the big screen or, or whatnot, I totally understand that. So if you're going to make a rule about signs, at least make it consistent I know that the taunting and things that can happen from the stands, a lot of teams like to police that so it doesn't cross a line. But the Astros have crossed so many lines here. I think it's kind of revisionist history if they want to come in and say, well, no, well, you can't bring up the thing that we did that was so bad, even if it's in a joking manner, which fans pay their money. They sit there and and get to kind of voice their opinion, good, bad, or indifferent for the most part, as long as they, I think, keep it clean. That's the biggest thing. So I feel like this was a big miss for either that ballpark, the security, the Astros, or all of the above. Yeah, you make a great point. As long as you're not bothering the other fans around you by holding up the sign when, you know, in the middle of a pitch or something where yeah. people can't see, as long as your sign doesn't have, you know, vulgarity on it, 
I don't care. You know, you want to you know call them the cheaters or the cheatros or whatever the 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 phrase that people the are using now. Throws. That yeah, that that's that's fine with me. I I don't have a problem with that. And even yelling at players. Uh, I had a buddy of mine that had uh, seats right next to the bullpen, uh, the visitors bullpen there in left field at the Nat Stadium, mm-hmm. and he had so many guys. He was a season ticket holder. He had so many guys. He'd been there for a couple of years that from the other teams that would come and, and they would see him at games. And after a while, they'd you know, say hi to him, ask him how his wife and everything is. Now, he would ride them for all nine innings if he could. Of course. But he wasn't vulgar. He was clever. They appreciated it. And in the end, if, you know, if the guy had you know gotten a save and struck out the side the night before and they saw him next day, he'd be like, hey, man, you had it last night. You were on it. I mean, that friendly banter, I think the players enjoy it as well. As long as you're not being vulgar and over the top and cursing. Because, again, there are kids around you. I know the argument is, oh, I paid money. It's not my fault. Your kids are hearing this anyway. Yeah, but that doesn't mean I want them to hear it, and especially not from some drunk idiot in the left field stand. So I think as long as everybody keeps it above board, the Astros are just, just going to have to deal with whatever they get. Yeah, the more sensitive they get about it and the more they try to control aspects of this that, I mean, the horse is out of the barn now, as they say. I mean, we can come up with a bunch of cliches. You're not going to be able to dial this thing back or rewind it. I mean, they made specific decisions on the field and obviously in the video room, and then they made specific decisions about how they wanted to handle it. So everybody's got their opinions. None of them seem to be mild. Everyone seems to have a very extreme opinion about this, and nobody seems to appreciate what the Astros have done to the game overall, and we still have the Boston Red Sox waiting out there to get their punishment from Major League Baseball. So, again, as we've said time and time again, week after week, this story is just going to continue. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but hopefully it'll be something we can at least get under control by the time we get to opening day, though, Bill, I don't know. I don't know if I see that happening or not because, you know, what happens in the stands is one thing. What may happen on the field as well between some of these teams that are a little bit more heated with one another, like, say the Yankees and the Astros that we're still waiting to see. Yeah. And as we've talked about, they can control what the message may be in their stadium with the signs and everything else. But as you say, when it gets to the on field thing, what are they going to do? And are you surprised now, Grant, as we move on to another Astros uh, subject here that right now they are leading all teams in spring training and hit batsmen. No bench clearing incident so far, no fights, nothing like that. But it does beg the question, does this continue when the games actually count when we get to the end of March and early April? I think that it's going to. Even though Commissioner Manfred's come out and said, look, don't throw at these guys. There will be penalties for throwing at these guys. Dusty Baker's come in as a guy that had nothing to do with what the Astros did. He's their new manager and says, hey, you know, we don't need to have guys being thrown at, but... We know this is as old as the game. Guys like to police it. They like to do it on the field. They like to handle it their own way. So I would expect there will be some isolated incidents of this, but I don't expect three Astros to get hit every single night, especially for clubs that really don't have a beef with them in particular, don't have that whole postseason thing hanging over their heads of, well, we lost a series to these guys and we're upset about it and we want some retribution. But I expect there to be some of it. I would imagine that, you know, just watching as much baseball as both of us had, It would be surprising if there wasn't some kind of retaliation, but Grapefruit League hit batsmen, that doesn't really register on my radar of uh, getting retribution and or revenge if that's what clubs are looking for. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the people that have written the columns or talked about it or or screamed about, oh my gosh, look how much they're getting hit. It's been more than one batter a game. They're not really paying attention, A, to the situations when guys got hit, or B, the guys who did get hit because – 
so far, the only two regulars that got have been hit in spring training were Jose Altuve, who got hit on his foot, and even Dusty Baker is like, nobody's throwing at a guy's foot. Let's relax here. Right. And then Alex Bregman got hit by a minor league pitcher on a 3-2 count on a splitter that got away from the guy. The rest of the people that have been hit either weren't with the Astros when they were cheating right. or are minor leaguers. So to me, I'm just going to look at this. I'm going to scream small sample size and move on. I'm with you. If it starts happening in April, then I'm going to be interested to see what Major League Baseball does. But for right now, this is just randomness. And there are a bunch of teams that have one less hit batsman than the Astros do. I don't know why anybody's throwing at them. They weren't cheating. So I, this, I think I think the people that are writing the columns, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's you or I in this, but I think the people that are writing, writing the columns on this and getting it all up in arms are really not looking at the situation. And, and quite frankly, maybe don't understand spring training baseball all that well. Yeah, and at this point, we're not talking about major league pitchers that are going deep into games or specific big league relievers that are coming in and doing this as well. It's get some guys some work over the first three to four innings, and then it's a bunch of guys who are going to be in minor league camp that are throwing the final few frames of the game. So, again, these are not the guys, and as you mentioned, not only are they not the guys that would be throwing at potential Astros hitters to get this level of justice, if you want to call it that, but also hitting a bunch of Astros minor leaguers for the most part really doesn't send a message either. So uh, the way I look at it, we're going to find out. It's not too long from now. I expect there to be some of it but I don't necessarily expect it to be just across the league. Everybody's trying to one-up how many Astros got hit the night before. Let's move on and take a look in the National League East, where the New York Mets have not gotten much out of a very big investment they made a few years ago in Ioannis Cespedes. He's 34 years old now, but he's hoping that that's going to change because after missing all of 2019, most of 2018, and half of 2017, Cespedes said he's healthy and expects to be ready for opening day. Bill, I have to ask you because he's got to prove it out on the field. Do you think the Mets can really count on Cespedes at this point in his career? So you just said it. Prove it. And I take the same approach with Cespedes as I do with our conversation about Chris Davis of the Orioles last week. Prove me wrong. Show me that I can rely on you. That's where I am with this. He's missed so much time now. And as you mentioned, he's, he's 34. Look, he could always hit. He could hit for power. The Mets are way more fun and way more exciting with him in the middle of the lineup hitting 30 home runs and driving in 100, but he hasn't faced real major league pitching in 18 months. Right. Game, live action pitching in 18 months. You know as well as I do, the guy might be able to get away with that in his 20s. When you get into your 30s, naturally things start slowing down anyway. I just hope for the Mets' sake that he still has that timing that he has because when he's right – He's one of the best hitters in baseball, but it's been 18 months. He's got to prove it to me that he can still do it. Yeah, and to me, it may have even really been longer than that since he's been a really impactful hitter. you got to go back, I think, to 2017. Cespedes, though, was one of the main feature players for the Mets when they made that World Series run. Even though they lost to the Royals, I felt like they owed it to themselves to continue to try to get back there with the club they had because it was so good, but they had to re-sign Cespedes, and that's exactly what they did, but They've spent about $25 million a year on a player who has not been able to stay healthy. And last year, I think he really tried their patience by having that ranching accident and costing himself an entire season because of what he's doing off the field during the winter. So it's a difficult situation, I think, that they're in. But for Cespedes, you know, whether he's got egg on his face or not, I know he came to spring training and said he didn't plan to talk to reporters all year long as well. So there's a lot of stuff, I think, going on between the ears of Cespedes. But the Mets want to see what he can do between the white lines. But 
he's got to be healthy and get out there so that they can count on him in any way, shape, or form. Because, as you mentioned, if he's right, this is a big bat they can put in the middle of their order that really needs it. Yeah, absolutely. And and he's a guy, again, I think he, he lengthens out. We talk about that as well. He lengthens out their lineup. He provides protection, whether you believe it in or not. He's just another guy that you have to worry about if you're a pitcher. And again, if he's on, you're talking 30 home runs. You're talking, you know, a, a 275 to 280 average probably. I mean, if he's right, he's very, very good. But as you mentioned, it, the injuries have just derailed this guy for the last at least 18 months, yeah. if not beyond that. Probably, as you said, it's probably closer to 24 to, to maybe even 30 months. Yeah, but as you mentioned, impact bats are hard to come by. The Mets feel like they might have one here. Cespedes has a lot to prove, and we've talked about that in different way, shapes, and forms about players on one-year deals, say recently, about how they're betting on themselves and have a lot to prove. Cespedes may not quite be in that boat, but if he wants to resuscitate his career and continue playing, he kind of is on a one-year prove-it kind of deal with the Mets this year. Absolutely. All right, let's stay in New York. We'll just switch leagues and go over to the AL East, where once again the Yankees have a not-so-fun week on the injury front. We found out that Luis Severino was lost for the season as he's going to have to have Tommy John surgery. Meanwhile, Juan Carlos Stanton will be down for a few weeks with a strained calf. New York overcame a ton of injuries last year, but this is not the way they expected 2020 to start. No, it's not. And I will point this out just from the Giancarlo Stanton angle of this before we get into Severino. But from Stanton's point of view or the point of view the club may take as far as Stanton is concerned, not having him last year was something they were able to overcome. And I would say I was a bit surprised by that, just based on who he is, the profile of the player he is when he's healthy and the impact that he can make. The interesting thing about all the injuries they had last year is Miguel Andujar, their third baseman, who was a Rookie of the Year finalist in 2018. He missed almost all of 2019 but could now return as an outfielder. And that's kind of nice to have that kind of depth with a player that did as much as Andujar did a couple of years ago if you're going to lose a Giancarlo Stanton for any amount of time. And we feel like this time it may only be a few weeks. But either way, this injury bug thing for the Yankees the last year or so has been, I would say, troubling at the very least. But you've got all kinds of guys that stepped up in the last year to really just make a name for themselves. I'm looking at guys like Gio Urshela and some of the ones that just you wouldn't have expected in spring training last year if you knew you were going to lose some of your major pieces, that these were going to be the guys that would help you win 100 games. But the Yankees have that kind of depth. Now, on the pitching side, as we both know, they spent a ton of money on Garrett Cole, but that was to put him in a rotation that included a guy like Luis Severino and a guy like James Paxton. And all of a sudden, those last two names are going to be down, you know, one for a few weeks, maybe a couple of months. The other one for the entire season, this was not how I think Brian Cashman and company were planning their spring to go over the first couple of weeks. No, absolutely not. And we've joked about it in the last couple of weeks saying, oh, well, instead of 105 wins, they'll get 100. Well, yeah. now another injury. Instead of 100, they'll get 95. And and now you have this injury. And as you pointed out, they won without him last year talking about Stanton he only played in 18 games and they still managed to win the division going away and had the Astros not been cheating maybe they get themselves to the World Series but they put 30 players I think actually more than 30 players on on the injured list it was a record year. wasn't it yes yeah, still I want to say something like 35 36 and still won and won convincingly last year so they, as you mentioned, have the depth, and they're bringing guys that missed time last year, going to be back this year. But focusing in on Stanton, this is a big year for him. 
because he's got the opt out after 2020. Yeah. And if he if he sees all this money being thrown around, Mookie Betts and all these guys, Harper and Rendon and all these guys are getting this money. If he goes out and has a monster year, maybe he can then cash in a little bit further than what he's going to make coming up, which is still ridiculous, $29, $30 million a year. But he has an opportunity to opt out. No chance if he only plays 60, 75 games this year that he's opting out. And the Yankees aren't cash poor, but I'm not sure they want to be paying a guy $29, $30 million a year for the next four or five years to get 70 games from him. No, there's no no two ways about it. That's bad economics, and that's just that's a drain on your payroll no matter how big it is. But – you know, I also look at this, and I just I pulled up the Yankees to see. I mean, this is a club that hit, I believe, about 300 home runs last year, just over 300 home runs. And some of the guys that stepped up, I mean, when you lose a Giancarlo Stanton, you're not expecting Cameron Maben, Aaron Hicks, Clint Frazier, and Mike Ford, among others, to combine to hit almost 50 home runs between them, and none of them played more than 82 games. I mean, these were it's guys amazing. that were coming through night after night after night. I mentioned that Gio Urshela, I mean, he turned himself into an everyday big league player, hit well over 300, lots of extra base hit uh, ability for him. DJ LeMahieu had a career year, and I don't know that you can expect that out of every 30-year-old that you just happened to sign, and that was a pretty darn good acquisition by the Yankees as well. They missed half a season of D.D. Gregorius as well. I mean, Glaber Torres missed some time, but they somehow found a way uh, to turn things around and, you know, put a team out there that each and every night, even if you didn't know the names, you looked at that final score and the Yankees were putting up the runs. So long story short, they got to get the offense rolling, but I feel like they've got enough depth there. But this pitching thing, this could be real problematic, and I would not be surprised to see the Yankees go out and make some kind of deal to maybe bring in a veteran proven starting pitcher or two, even if it's not somebody in the prime of their career. Not You're not going to find another Garrett Cole right now, but somebody who can come in give you innings, and stabilize the pitching staff behind Garrett Cole. And right now it looks like Tanaka may be the only other guy we really know that's going to be a quantity out there the Yankees can count on every fifth day. There's going to be a little bit of mix and match going on, at least until they get Paxton back. And they have to be pretty happy they didn't trade away Jay Happ, and they have to be pretty happy they didn't trade away a guy like Andujar as well. Sometimes the best moves you make are the ones you don't. Yeah, I think they will definitely be on the list of buyers once we get into June and July and the, you know, the trade season starts heating up and they're going to be a team that's looking for some starting pitching depth because they know when you get into October, you need to have that quality depth to go up against some of the teams that they're going to have to face. Again, Houston, even though they took Garrett Cole from them, their, their pitching staff is still pretty good. Mm-hmm. They still have a pretty good solid rotation. And then you look further into the World Series and teams that you may face, you're going to need those pitchers. And and I'm not sure if you trust the J-Hap to throw game three of the ALCS for you if you have another option that's available to you. Nice pitcher. I'm not sure he's the kind of guy that, that you think can shut down a lineup uh, when you need it, say, if you're tied you know, 1-1 in a seven-game series. But they will be buyers, and they have the depth yeah. and the talent to be able to be buyers when when it comes that time in, in June and July. Yeah, I think that's a big thing the Yankees have is the ability to go out, spend some money. Also, they have a pretty good farm system on most years, and they've got the depth that they can go out and make those deals happen there as well. And if they want to take on a contract somebody's looking to get rid of, they're obviously in that camp as well. So they're pretty well-rounded when it comes to making some acquisitions. And you have to be to come out of the American League East on top. And as we stick in that division, not great news out of Red Sox camp either as MLB continues its investigation. 
Boston announced something that on the field is going to set them back at least briefly, they hope, and that is that ace Chris Sale is going to start the season on the injured list. Walking pneumonia is what it's been called. It slowed him down the last couple of weeks, so he's not going to be able to ramp up and be physically ready to take the ball on opening day. But it was elbow inflammation last year, Bill, that really cost him some time. Given that the big extension's about to kick in, the Red Sox, I think, are doing the right thing by handling Chris Sale with care right here at the start of the season. Yeah, talk about paying somebody $30 million and not getting a, a healthy player. This is another example of it right here. Uh, Red Sox, when they first traded for sale, got 214 innings out of him in 2017. He threw 158 in 2018 during the regular season, obviously helped them win the World Series that year. And then last year, he didn't even get to 150. It's a bad trend line for sale as well when hits and home runs and all these things are up. A guy that's going to be 31 at the end of March and now has a injury history in his pitching elbow. It does not add up to good things. For the Red Sox, I like the idea that they're going to hold him back. They say, oh, it'll only be a couple of starts because he's not going to be able to ramp up. I'll be honest with you, Grant. I would be surprised if we see sale at all in April and maybe not until the middle of May because I just have a feeling he's not 100% right, and this is the way for them to kind of back things off for a couple more months. I'm not convinced that Chris Sale is even healthy, pneumonia or not. Yeah, and that's a great question. And when you look at a guy that missed some time with some arm troubles last year, you have to ask yourself those questions if you're the organization that's trying to handle that in the best way for both themselves and for the player. And when we talk about Chris Sale, I mean, the Red Sox knew what they were getting when they traded for him. And annually, we go all the way back to 2013, this guy's had a top five finish in the Cy Young Award. He was a runner-up in 2017. He finished fourth in 2018 when the Red Sox won the World Series. And last year was the first time that he did not finish in the Cy Young uh, conversation, if you will, since all the way back in 2012. So they knew the kind of pitcher they were getting, but as we've said on the show and we'll probably say again and can probably say in life, time is undefeated, and we don't necessarily know when certain athletes just start to hit that trend where they're fighting both themselves as far as injuries are concerned and the fact that you're just getting older, it's not going to be the same as it was during the prime years of your career but Chris Sale last year was still piling up strikeouts, still looked like a pretty good pitcher at times, but it's going to be pretty tough if you're sitting on the injured list to make any kind of an impact for the Red Sox and for Chris Sale to maybe dispel some of the questions about what his durability will be as he goes forward in his career, which with a big extension he just signed, you would hope would be maybe some more prime years before he starts to really hit the decline and get into his middle to late 30s. Yeah, you talked about it when he was uh, when he was at the White Sox. He was electric, and all those innings tend to add up. And if you're obviously baseball fans listening to this podcast, you've seen Chris Sale pitch. It is not, uh, I don't want to say this, gentle on Natural. that elbow the way he throws that fastball and slider. And so I just wonder, as you said, there's so only so many innings, only so many pitches for each of these guys. You wonder if a lot of those innings and a lot of those pitches that he had with the White Sox in that first year with the Red Sox and striking out 300 batters and everything else, if that has just shortened the lifespan of his career, much like not quite the same. He's not the same dominant guy, but you think of a guy like Sandy Koufax who threw so hard in so many innings way back in the 60s that his career was cut short because of because of the arm injuries. Yeah, and Sandy Koufax was done by the age of 30 as well, which a lot of people might forget because he never pitched in the minor leagues. And 
you know, Koufax or not, left-handed or not, for that matter, that's another thing these two guys share. But, you know, I think for Chris Sale, obviously the idea is to keep on going. I don't want to turn walking pneumonia into a season-ending injury discussion here, but you just have to wonder, just after the last couple of years, even in 2018, when Sale was, you know, still, I think, at the top of his game, but started to kind of have a little bit of trouble here and there, only through 158 innings that year. Of course, he was a big contributor in the postseason, closed out their World Series win, only 147 and a third innings and 25 starts last year. So the trend is not exactly going where you want it to. I think the Red Sox would, would very much like to see 30 starts and maybe 180, 190 innings out of a healthy Chris Sale. And we know what kind of numbers he can put up if he's out there and feeling good every fifth day. Absolutely. All right, a little bit closer to home for you guys there in Atlanta as we move over to the NL East. The Braves have a little injury scare as well. All-star first baseman Freddie Freeman scratched earlier in the week with elbow inflammation. Freeman had off-season surgery to correct the issue, but should the Braves fans be worried about his status come opening day, Grant? I don't think they should be worried about that right now. And one of the re- big reasons why is that the surgery that Freddie Freeman had was an absolute necessity. And he said he was pain-free for the first time in nine years by getting this surgery. And we're talking about two bone spurs and three bone chips or bone fragments that were taken out of that elbow. So this was going to have to happen one way or another. Now, for Freddie Freeman and for really, I think, the Braves in general, when it comes to where is this club come October, what level are they operating on offensively speaking the last couple of years they've had some great offensive seasons on the whole and individually and then it seems like you get to the postseason and the offense isn't quite clicking the same way and I know some folks wonder it was that because guys are playing too much and Freddie Freeman's a guy that wants to play 162 games he wants to play every inning of every game that's just the way that he's wired and I don't want to change that about a player but there might be a case that maybe a a game here and there would help Freddie Freeman to navigate himself through the season, maybe around that 150 to 155 mark, just kind of having that daily, or not daily, but that, you know, every other week kind of uh, maintenance day, if you want to call it that. That could be helpful for him. But as far as this injury is concerned, I think Freeman was going to experience maybe a little bit of this soreness when he ramped up baseball activities fully. This wasn't, oh, I'm going to go hit for 30 or 45 minutes and then call it a day. This is all of the throws, all of the swings, all of the work that he's doing, and then getting back into game shape. And I think most athletes in any sport will tell you there's a difference in the practice and the game shape that you need to be in. And I think that's kind of what Freddie Freeman ran into just early on here as he works his way back in, looks to get comfortable with an elbow that should be in much better shape now than it was before the surgery. Yeah, you make a great point. You talk about ever since he took over in 2011, he's been a workhorse for them. Outside of, I guess he missed, what, 10 weeks with the wrist injury a few years back. Other than that, he's been a guy that you could pencil in for 155 to 160 games uh, night in and night out. I think it's a smart move for Atlanta. I don't think fans should be concerned, as you said. I think it's one of those things that he's going to – this may be the new normal for him, that he may have to take off. You know, play 15, take off one, play 15, take off one, whatever it may be, you know, every couple of weeks. Quite honestly, I think at the end of the year, we're going to look up. He's going to have a slash line of, you know, 295 and 375 and slug 525. And we're all going to wonder what the fuss was about in February, why we were so worried about him. He is a mainstay in that lineup. And I imagine that he will continue to be. It just may be, as you mentioned, the new normal for him to have to take a, a day off you know, every 10 to 15 days if he needs to, if that elbow starts barking at him. Because better to take a day off than to end up missing two weeks 
in August and September because you've tried to fight your way through it. Yeah, 100% agree with that. And, and maybe for Freddie, and I think for a lot of athletes, and maybe just people in general, I mean, you get used to certain types of pain, and then you experience a different type of pain, maybe after a, a surgical procedure or whatnot. And the fact that it is just a little bit different or that you felt like, oh, well, I had this procedure, it should never hurt again, that may not really be a thing that's actually possible because the wear and tear on on players is – I, I don't know if it's quantifiable the the way that these guys really leave it all out there each and every day. I mean, I uh, did a show with Brian Jordan, who you well know, had a long major league career, also had an mm-hmm. NFL career. He told me baseball was much harder on his body on a daily basis than football was because he was going to get hit in football, but he was gearing up to play once a week, whereas baseball, it's an everyday thing. And that obviously is what lends a lot of teams to wanting to find those days here and there to rest a guy. And again, I don't want to rewire the way Freddie Freeman is from a competitive standpoint, but if it means, you know, every two to three weeks, just giving him that day where, well, heck, if he wants to pinch hit in the eighth inning, that's fine. But just giving him that day where he doesn't have to go through all of the things to to play and can just rest up and watch a little bit. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. And as he transitions into his thirties, it might actually be a smart thing. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. And I know other teams have done this in the past with, with older athletes or guys who just can't do the 150 to 160 games i would i would suspect atlanta a lot of times may give him the day off uh from playing when they have an off day the next day so he gets two days Mm -hmm. off and you only miss one game i think that might be a a good approach for them to look at because i know other teams have done this in the past and, and and worked it out pretty well yeah, and you know he doesn't want to take days off when he's on, you know, a 15-game hitting streak. But if he's in that little skid right. where he's maybe five for his last 20 with no extra base hits, why not give him the day at that point? Because it happens to everybody. I don't care who you are. If it was Ted Williams, Ichiro Suzuki, Tony Gwynn, doesn't matter. You're going to have that week or maybe a couple of times a year. You're going to have that little spell where just nothing really seems to be going right. And sometimes a little rest, a little reset might be pretty helpful as far as that's concerned as well. Meanwhile, let's head out west where the Diamondbacks find themselves a brand-new left-handed starting pitcher over the offseason, and that, of course, is Madison Bumgarner, the longtime giant. The D-backs knew that he lives on a ranch. I think that was one of the reasons he signed out there. But I think the club was unaware that he was moonlighting with a rodeo career. Bumgarner competes under the alias Mason Saunders and won over $26,000 in a team roping competition back in December, according to The Athletic in a report that came out this past week. Uh, It's unclear right now if the team's going to allow this to continue, this hobby that Bumgarner has of competing in the rodeo. Uh, But, Bill, this may be the least surprising revelation of the year when you consider who it is and what it is that was going on. I love it. I absolutely love this. Good for him for doing something that he loves, and he's clearly good at it because he won $26,000. I didn't even even know you could win $26,000 in team roping. But uh, I'm all for guys having a life outside of baseball like this. I get it. If he gets hurt, his contract should be voided or there's to be something, some sort of relief for the team itself. But let these guys be guys while they're still young and can enjoy it. And another example of this that I'll give you is here in Washington, Max Scherzer. And years ago, when he first came over to Washington, they had one of their winter fest things where all the players are there. And I sat down and interviewed him. And he talked about one of his favorite things to do in the offseason is to go scuba diving with sharks. He's got video on his Twitter page. And I'm not talking about like you go to Hawaii, they lower you down the cage and they chum the water and the little sharks come by. I mean, he's got video of him on his Twitter page from, I want to say back in 2016, where he's chasing down like baby whale sharks 
and white tips yeah. and stuff like that. You want to go do that kind of stuff? You want to go rope cattle? You want to go swim with sharks? I say have at it because you know what? You're only young enough to do it once, and you're only going to be around for so many years that you have the ability to do it. I'm all for it. I think it's great. Yeah, and, and I think it's something that guys who have hobbies that involve a little bit of risk is always going to be on the radar of the club that is employing them and paying them all this money. And I can't help but think about, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this. In fact, I'm sure it's been talked about a lot. But you remember what three years ago when Bumgarner was pitching for the Giants went out on an off day and had a dirt bike accident and landed on the yep. disabled list. That's the kind of stuff that, and, and even afterwards, Bumgarner said, obviously that was not his intention and probably not the most responsible decision that he had made. And that's one of those activities that they marked off the list of things that he will be doing on a regular basis, if not on any basis until his playing career is over. I don't think that's a bad thing. I know that there's going to be some inherent risk built into getting on a horse. You can get thrown off, you know, different things can happen. Uh, in the rodeo, we know that uh, that's not necessarily the most gentle of all sports or events either, but I don't really have a big problem with him going and doing this if he picks the right kind of competitions. And as you mentioned, I mean, you only get one chance to live your life at a certain age, and I hate to tell people, well, because you are an athlete, you can no longer do any of these other things and just put them in bubble wrap, so to speak, which is kind of a running joke for, I think, a lot of fans that, oh, yeah, we just don't want him to get hurt, so don't let him do anything else. It's kind of hard to, uh, I, I think, to police life in that manner, if you will. So I think it's amusing. I'm with you. I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's kind of a fun thing. And I, I think that Bumgarner has probably earned the right at this particular age to go out and have a few hobbies in addition to throwing a baseball every fifth day. Yeah, as long as he's not you know, throwing on Thursday night and know that he doesn't have another start until Tuesday and he decides that he's going to go do a rodeo that weekend in the season, as long as that stuff's not going on, I say let him let him have his fun. It's not that big of a deal. Again, you know he's got to be smart about it. It's not like riding a dirt bike or anything else like that. So I'm I think it's great. I'd love I'd love for more of these athletes like Scherzer, like Bumgarner, to talk about some of the things they do in the offseason because I think it makes them more real and more relatable. And who knows? Maybe I'll find something that I've never thought of before that looks like it could be pretty fun and I'd want to try for myself. Not rodeo, but who knows right. what else is out for there. sure. All right, here's something that you don't see every day. Japan's Professional Baseball League says it's going to play its remaining 70 preseason games in empty stadiums because of, yes, of course, the spreading coronavirus. The regular season will open on March 20th. The virus that began in China is now disrupting all of the country's sports schedules and has even raised concerns about the Tokyo Olympics this summer, Grant, is this something we should be thinking about here in the U.S.? Well, I think it's on everybody's mind right now, and there's no way that it couldn't be. But we are starting to see, not only in your everyday life, just from reading the news cycle and starting to think about how it might affect people as this thing spreads. But this is a very real thing when you think about, you know, the proximity of Japan and China where this whole thing originated. And now we are seeing it affect sports. I think that several Japanese sporting leagues have made similar decisions, but very strange to see, obviously, baseball games, professional baseball games happening, and fans are not invited into that ballpark to watch it go on. But that's exactly what's going to happen as they made this decision, the owners did, and they are hoping to start their season as scheduled on March 20th. But you just kind of have to wonder, uh, is this you know reactive? Is it proactive? We might find out the answer to that in the coming weeks as this whole thing plays out and we discover perhaps how big this epidemic is going to be. Yeah, it's the only time I can remember it happening in Major League Baseball was a few years ago in Baltimore. Yeah. 
when the Orioles had to play in front of basically no fans because of the riots that had been going on there. And, and it was a weird look and people that were there, I didn't cover the game, but I had friends that went and covered it and they said it was just odd, like not even spring training odd, like just eerie to have, you still had the public address announcer and you still had all that stuff, but there's nobody, literally nobody in the stand. So, I, I mean, I can't imagine if it got to that point here and they put a city. I mean, I know they've done some travel situations in L.A. and San Francisco and even in New York. But say they put San Francisco, you know, Oakland on lockdown or whatever, quarantine. Would they just move the games? Would they cancel? I, I'd be fascinated to see how Major League Baseball would handle it. Yeah, and I don't know that there's really an answer to that because you would be really following the lead of however the government decided to do things in regards to trying to contain or control the spread of that virus. But again, I don't want to cause a panic. I just thought it was an interesting story insofar as we just don't see this kind of stuff very often where it's like, all right, we'll right. play the games. But, you know, for fan safety or just for the thought of, you know, maybe halting the possible spread of a virus, we're not going to have fans in the ballpark as these baseball games go on. So, you know, this thing, it's obviously going to affect a lot of lives as everyone kind of uh, works to figure out exactly how this is going to be handled, but just a strange little offshoot into the world of professional baseball that I thought was at least worth bringing up. Absolutely. Just remember, wash your hands, wipe stuff down with, you know, bleach and yep. when we'll all be safe, it'll, it'll work. At, it'll work itself out. All right. I'm gonna throw some hand sanitizer on here right now because <laughs> this next story got a little bit ugly as well because the Philly fanatic got a makeover this spring with numerous, mostly subtle changes that, Some fans don't really care about. Other fans don't seem to be too happy about. But at the age of 42, the club and the mascot's creators have been battling over the fanatic and the trademark of him in court. His creators, Bonnie Erickson and Wade Harrison, who were also known for their work in creating Miss Piggy of Muppets fame, they've been fighting to maintain control of their creation's character and backstory and obviously the aesthetic of the Philly fanatic as well and build this custody battle between the two sides, the Phillies and the uh, Fanatics creators, the Fanatics extended family. This thing has gotten a little bit messy. Yeah, I, I looked today and went and looked at the side-by-side, you know, last year or the last few years and then this year. I got to admit, I like the old Fanatic better. I don't disagree. I think the look, yeah, I think the, they, they, they thinned him down, which I'm not a big fan of. No reason to fat shame the fanatic. He was fine the way he was. <laughs> he was comfortable with at his weight, uh-huh. right? He was okay. And I'm not sure I like the, the purple stars that they did around the – like the, the mask around the eyes. Just, just not a big fan. But I'll be honest, I'm not a huge mascot guy to begin with. I like them. I think they're fun. But I'm not going to get down and dirty and be angry about some changes to the mascot. Although I do prefer pre-2020 Philly mascot, uh, Philly fanatic, than I do the the post-2021. Yeah, and it's not like the Philly fanatic is unrecognizable because of these changes. But the stars around the eyes were a little bit strange. And some of the other things that were done, I guess, just to the overall uh, size and shape of the fanatic, if we want to get into that whole debate. But yeah, I, either way, like I'm with you. The mascot doesn't really move the needle for me as someone who works in and around the sport. I understand why they're out there. They can make, uh, from a marketing standpoint, a big impact. They can improve uh, the enjoyment, I think, of the, at, at the very least casual fans and folks that, you know, do come to the ballpark looking for an all-around entertaining evening. But, you know, I, I think that for this, it, the club clearly has a long-standing relationship with this as their mascot, but also the people that created him 
have a long-standing relationship with their creation. So this is not something you're going to see, I don't think, too often. I don't remember the San Diego chicken having to go to court for a custody battle over who owns right. him and who gets to design the way that he looks or any other major league or other pro mascot that I can think of that has the visibility of the Philly fanatic who I would imagine is probably one of, if not the most famous mascots in all of professional sports. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. He may be because you don't see the San Diego chicken very often anymore. anymore. Because I think the guy who, yeah, I think the guy who developed and retired and nobody kind of took it back over again. So, yeah, the fanatic may be. I'm trying to real quick go through the rest of, you know, baseball, basketball, and everything. I, he may be the most visible and well known mascot that's left out there. Um, which is why I have a problem with them messing with him. He's a legend. You don't mess with legends. Keep him the way he was, but I'm not going to get upset. Look, I I hope they come to a good decision that that works for both sides. I hope this isn't a situation where the Phillies looked at it and said, oh, this contract is running out, and hey, you know what? If we change it a little bit, then it's not their creation. It's a new one, and now we don't owe them anything. I hope it's not something like that. I hope they can figure this thing out because it is kind of dumb. Yeah, and apparently about 35 years ago, there was a federal lawsuit that the Phillies had filed to prevent Harrison and Erickson Incorporated, that's the uh, creators of the Fanatic, from backing out of this 1984 agreement in which they transferred the rights of the Fanatic forever for $215,000. So clearly money was going to be involved somewhere in this, had a feeling that that was going to probably be at the center of it. But, you know, 41 years ago when this Fanatic was created, Uh, by Wade Harrison and and Bonnie Erickson. They were obviously a fan of their work and didn't enjoy it being tinkered with by the Philadelphia Phillies um, to open the spring training. So just one of the weirder stories where we always talk about who's shown up in the best shape of their life. Well, we thought maybe the Fanatic showed up in the best shape of his life, but we found out his offseason there might have been some things that we didn't know about that went into all that. So now we know. There you go. All right, well, that'll wrap us up in our starting nine for this week. As always, I appreciate Bill Rowland making the time to jump in and talk about all of the many topics and many things going around the world of baseball. We've been able to whittle our Astros content down from, I think, five. Well, one time we had to cancel the starting nine and just do all Astros, then get it down to five, then to three. We're down to two this week, so maybe next week we'll be down to one. That would be great. And next week we will actually be less than a month away from actual, real, live, regular season baseball. Cannot wait. This is the final from the Diamond in the month of February. We jump into March, and as Bill mentioned, opening day closer by the day right around the corner. Cannot wait for that, and cannot wait for next week, Bill. Look forward to talking to you then. Absolutely. Have a great weekend to you and everybody listening. I appreciate it. My thanks again to Bill Rowland for jumping on, and my thanks to you for listening to this episode of From the Diamond. As always, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Ratings and reviews appreciated. Keep those coming in, and be sure to connect on social media. On Twitter, at From the Diamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley, and Bill is at Bill Rowland. On Instagram, at From the Diamond, no underscore on that one. I am at Grant McCauley there as well. And everything, including every episode of this show and the podcast series I'm doing, previewing the Atlanta Braves, you can find that and all the articles and good stuff at FromTheDiamond.com. So that brings us to the end of this episode. But as we mentioned throughout the show, we are one week closer to opening day. And this is the final From the Diamond of the month of February. We're about to rip that page off the calendar and jump into March. And then opening day will be just over three, well, just under four weeks away Very excited about that. Looking forward to it. 
but not wanting to fast forward through some of the fun that spring training brings us each and every year. The positional battles, the stories, and you'll hear all about them right here on From the Diamond. And with that, our time is done. For Bill Rowland, I'm Grant McCauley. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you next week on an all-new episode of From the Diamond. Until then, so long, everyone. We'll be right back. 